Good morning, Vineyard. It is so good to be with you. My name is Janice, and uh, I am not your usual pastor. Uh, pastor Joe is in northern Indiana today preaching up there. He did a men's retreat, and, uh, and then he finished up by preaching at a vineyard church up there called The Vine. Uh, they're fairly new, but they are, are working it. It is a good, good thing. It's a good work, and he'll be back uh, later this evening. So you get me. Um, we are continuing in the series that we have called Inconvenient. And uh, folks, we could do this the rest of the year. I promise we won't, but as you can tell, it's just an easy thing to lean into and just discuss so many different topics uh, about our faith. And, uh, and I titled this particular message, An Inconvenient Task, and I submitted it like we're supposed to do so that production can do all of its thing. And then um, later in the week, I wanted a do-over. And I was like, oh, if I had a, I, I, you know, I really could use a do-over on several areas of my week, but in one particular area, I would have renamed this message, An Inconvenient Pain. So if you're taking notes, take your pick. I don't really care. A painful task, something. I don't know. It's in there. I've been thinking about pain this week, partially because I've been running about half speed. I wrenched my back last week. Don't really know how that happened. I think my husband hugged me too hard, but I don't really know. I, I, or I've also fell over the dog and sat in a conference for too long. I don't know what happened, but I, I've been, you know, not full speed. And some of you have been dealing with much more pain than that. Uh, this week, and I've been thinking about you as well, and it just occurs to me that the way we handle pain is so significant. It really um, it says something about our approach to life, and let's face it, there are different kinds of pain, right? The pain that is an event. For example, I'm not a wimp. I've had five children. I've birthed five children, three of them without any medication, right? So, so I, but, but that's an event, and you, like, know it's not going to last for three months. So you can, like, you know, muscle down and, and do that. I got nothing to prove to y'all. I can, you know what I mean? But there's a different kind of pain that's chronic that can be a more nagging sort of thing. And, and if you don't know when your particular pain is going to end, whether it's something you're battling psychologically, if you're battling with it emotionally or, or physically, if you don't know when that's gonna end, you really don't know how to ration your resources. You don't know how to ration your energy. You don't know how to ration your emotions. Should I just sit and cry it out right now or do I need to save up? because it's going to be with me a while. You know what I'm saying? So, so your approach to pain. Now, get, uh, hear me on this. Pain is purposeful. There are some elements of pain in our life that, that we need to listen to. It's a warning. This is how you teach a child. Don't touch the fire, right? When you feel the pain, back off. That's a warning for you to remove yourself from that particular event. There's other types of pain that require us to muscle through. Just get to the other side of it. It's going to be good, you know, go to the gym, work through that pain, whatever it is, to get to the other side of the healing, whatever it is. And I would suggest that our ability to discern those different kinds of pain and to treat them appropriately is also significant. So, so whether you're someone who runs into pain or you're someone who avoids it at all costs and you start looking for other ways to escape whatever this pain is, I suggest says something about us. It will not only set the course for your life, your ability to handle pain and the way you approach it will not only affect the course of your life, it will affect the people around you. Am I right? Ha are you living with someone who doesn't handle pain well? Yeah. yeah, maybe it's you. 
And they're like, get over it. It's just a stubbed toe. You'll be fine. But you're like, no, I'm dying. Whatever. Your ability to handle pain, it, it does that. It, it affects people around you. There's collateral damage. I would suggest also that you, the way that we interpret pain affects the way we approach God. The way we interpret the pain that comes into our life affects the way we feel about God. You know, God, you're a big God. Why didn't you keep this from happening? God, you're a big God. Why don't you make it stop? Whatever that is, that's, that's a part of that deal. So we're going to talk about an inconvenient pain this morning, and oddly enough, we're going to apply it to parenting. So call it painful parenting. I don't know, because I would suggest that parenting is a pain. All right, there's lots of painful. If you think you're going to have kids and never going to be disappointed or sad or have them break your heart or whatever, you know, please don't even start. Don't even go there, all right, because it's going to happen one way or another, and your tolerance for and your approach to pain will affect the way you parent. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit. That your ability to push through things or your aversion to pain is going to affect the way that you parent your children. Now, don't tune me out if you don't have any kids, if you don't want any kids, or if you don't want the ones you have. <laughs> any of those, don't tune me out. I really believe the Holy Spirit has something to say to all of us this morning in some aspect because here's the, here's the bottom line. Whether you're a parent or not, we are all called to reproduce. Spiritually speaking, we are all called to reproduce, to disciple someone else. And there, there's a parenting aspect to that. And so we're going, to, we're going to get into a little bit of that. So before we dive in deep, let's just take a deep breath and ask God to, to be with us this morning. Father, we come to you. And we thank you so much for... God, I just thank you for community. I thank you for the fact that we don't have to do this alone. And, and where we are feeling like we lack in certain areas, you are there and you provide the resources with the church, with the body of believers when we come together. And so, Father, right now, wherever we are this morning, whatever ceiling, whatever shelter we have built in our life over us to protect ourselves, that keep us from receiving what you want to give to us, what you want to drop down spiritually into our lives, I pray that that would just be opened up like, a, like a, a skylight, like a window this morning to heaven, that we would just open up and hear what you want to speak to us through your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, I want to start by saying I don't think that there is a manual for parenting. I mean, there is no manual. People keep writing stuff, but let's face it. If it was really right, you know, it would like stay around and they just keep reworking it all the time because there is no manual for parenting. Of, of all of the most important things that you can do in your life, you don't even have to get a license to be a parent. Do you know what I mean? You don't. You have to get a license to be married in our world. You have to get a license to drive on the road. You have to get a license to do a whole lot of things. Parenting, eh, have one. You know, I mean, and, and God set that up, right? He made that possibility for us. So that tells me that he has more to do with this process than just whatever dorky wisdom you have when you're willing and able and, and end up becoming a parent in some way. Here's the bottom line. There's no manual. There's no manual for it, and, and lest you call me a heretic, can I just say that I don't even think the Bible is the manual for raising children. I really don't. Uh, first of all, I challenge any of you to find me three good examples of parenting in the Bible. I'll wait. 
I mean, I mean, seriously, it's just not there. I mean, we've got tons of terrible examples. Even the Son of God was lost by his parents for three days. You know what I mean? And, God, and, G, and Jesus, you know, God picked Mary for Pete's sake, and she still lost her kids. So take heart. There, there's, you know what I mean? There's just, you don't have to be perfect at this thing because he's going to be involved in it. But, and, and realize this, the Bible hasn't been around forever, so a lot of people have been born and raised to adulthood on this earth without the Bible even as a resource. So, so clearly there's other ways that he wants to work with us. It's not just a manual. Um, average normal children with mediocre parents have turned their kids into extraordinary individuals, or God has turned them into extraordinary individuals, right? So, so let's take a little bit of the pressure off. Um, last week, um, Pastor Joe and I were in Chicago for the Vineyard Pastors Conference that we uh, are required to attend every March, and, uh, and we love going up there, but in, it was freezing cold in Chicago last week, but we were in Chicago, so Hamilton... You know, I don't know if anybody knows, I know I'm a little late to the game, but you know, we went to see Hamilton and it was amazing. And I'm kind of a history person anyway. But if you don't know anything about Alexander Hamilton, take out a $10 bill, if you still know what those are, children. Um, a $10 bill, his picture's on there, but not because he was a president, all right? John Adams, quick history, right? John Adams called him the illegitimate child of a Scottish immigrant, because he was born in the islands illegitimately and made it into uh, to the mainland later. By the way, that's the PG version of what John Adams said. That's not really what he said, but that's all I'm going to tell you on this stage. All right, and, and in 47 years, this man did amazing things that set the course of our country in terms of finance and a whole lot of other things until he was shot dead by one of our vice presidents in a duel over a matter of honor, as men will do at times. And so... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we have, all right? So that's just one example of, of, of kind of a rags to, not riches, but a rags to power situation. All right, let's go back to the Bible for examples. Um, King David. King David is raised by parents. We think they're great, but they certainly didn't take him seriously because when Samuel comes around to pick the next king and to anoint him, they leave David out in the field taking care of sheep. They've got seven other sons. They're like, let's parade these in front of them. And when Samuel goes, none of these are right. Don't you have any more? Uh, clearly, you know, little sheep keeper, they're going to bring him in. They didn't give him any credit. So everything David becomes, I'm not going to give credit to his parents. How about Moses? Moses was born. We learn in the book of Acts that, they, that he was considered an extraordinary child. I don't know what makes an infant extraordinary. Maybe he didn't cry much. I don't know. That would make my infant extraordinary if they didn't cry. But um, his parents got to, you know, raise him briefly, but then he was transported to the palace and was raised in all the Egyptian schooling that was available. So even Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible and becomes this amazing leader of our, of the Old Testament, in, in the Old Testament, really can't credit that to his parents. Here's what I want you to know. If you'll hear anything else that I say today, I want you to get this. It is time for us to quit taking credit for all of the good things that our children do and will do. Conversely, it is time for us to quit taking the blame for every bad decision that our children have made over the years, all right? I think you've got to come to terms with that somewhere along the line. Now listen, are there patterns? Yes, there are. Do we have responsibility? Yes, we do. We have responsibility to train our children in the way of the Lord, but they get to decide whether they say yes to Jesus. 
If they, are, if they do not have permission to say yes to Jesus, if they don't get that right, if it's an automatic yes, if, if, if it's automatic, then, they're, then they're, the yes is meaningless if they do not have the right to say no. I didn't say that well, so let me say it again, all right? A yes to Jesus is only meaningful if I have the opportunity to say no. It's the same way with getting married. If my husband asks me to marry him and I'm, if I have no choice but okay, that's not very meaningful. If I have the opportunity to say, I don't think so, then my yes is powerful, right? Because I can choose not to do that. I can choose not to do that. So, so children have that option. And I think that sometimes parents take way too much on their shoulders. I feel so blessed by God that our five children have grown up to love Jesus and to serve him well. But if I take credit for that, that is arrogant and inappropriate. God gets credit for that. I did the best I could with the, what, what I had at the time. And I don't even think we were that great of parents, to be honest. We were better at marriage than we've ever been at parenting. But there you go. Uh, so I don't know why I'm preaching this today, but here we are. Um, so I'm just, I'm just saying they have to have that opportunity to say no. So let ourselves off the hook just a little bit and recognize that God is going to take credit for what happens in our children's lives. And we have to rely on him for direction and the ultimate destiny of our children. So with that in mind, I feel like he gave me, as I was you know, researching and studying for this message, um, a few principles that we can live by as we begin to raise our children. Some things, and they're kind of age and stage related, and I tried to narrow it down to three, which is the appropriate points in a sermon, and I couldn't, so we get four. All right, I promise to hurry. Are you ready? Number one, when you're parenting and when children are small, you must have rules. Number one, you must have rules. They all start with R, so that'll be helpful for you, right? Then we must have rules. Now, I know that's not a friendly word. Oh, we don't like that word. We want freedom. We want the, our children to have choices. And we want our, you know, our toddler to pick out what they want to wear. And we want to give them all of this stuff, right? Children thrive in their earliest years with some structure, with some boundaries around them. And if you are a parent, it is your job to set that up to give them some sort of structure, some sort of boundaries to guide them toward good choices. Strangely enough, this is how God does stuff, right? Now, we don't have God exactly raising children, but if you look at Adam and Eve, whom he created as kind of adult infants, <laughs> they know nothing, right? They come into the world as adults, but they know nothing. I think the way God deals with Adam and Eve is a little father-like in parenting, right? So what does he do? He sets them in this perfect little nursery terrarium that he has built for them, right? And then he says, look, here are all of these trees. These are good trees. You can eat anything you want off of these. No cooking necessary. Just go pluck and eat. You know, you're gonna be great. One tree over here, don't touch it. Now, I would love to know the odds on this. I don't know if there's like three good trees to one bad tree, or if there's a hundred good trees to one bad tree, but leave it to mankind to screw that up, right? Because we just like, oh, the good trees are great, but look at that. And, and they gravitate over to this, this place. But there's God setting up this boundary, setting up this fence, but still giving them the opportunity to, to walk out of that if they want. Fast forward to Moses with the children of Israel, and they come out of Egypt, and what does God do? He gives them the law. Now, there is a reason why you have fallen off of your Bible reading plan about March, February, March, if you're doing a chronological thing through the Bible. Because guess where you are? 
You all puttered out in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Am I right? Guess why? Because it's the law. Don't think that the Bible, every word in the Bible is all equal in, um, in its genre, okay? Because those three books are the law. And if you don't enjoy reading law books on your own for fun, chances are that isn't the most appealing thing. Muscle through, just you know, plow through. There's a few fabulous stories in there that'll keep your attention, but just muscle through and get through it because that is the law. 613 commandments that will make very little sense to us in this post-Jewish you know, situation. So um, that's the law. And the law was given to them as infants basically coming out of Israel to give them some structure. It's called a boundary. Children need boundaries. And if you want to raise physically, emotionally, and spiritually healthy children, you have to give them boundaries when they are small. Have you ever seen a child left to their own devices? You know what I'm talking about. Now, initially they might go a little crazy, but eventually you see that they're kind of frantic. They're like, who's in charge? Who's the boss? My children used to ask that all the time. If the babysitter came, are they in charge or is my older sister in charge? You know what I mean? They want to know who the authority figure is. Who is the boss in this outfit? We want to know uh, because they instinctively know that they can't make good decisions on their own. The other place that you see this is if you have toddlers and you've ever attempted to take a nap, while they're awake. Have you noticed? They hate that. Have you noticed that? They hate that. And they'll come over and you're trying to take a nap on the couch and they like pry your eyes open with their little fingers. It's the worst experience in, the, in your life. Because the last thing you want to wake up to is like a little toddler right there. You know, with, with their gritty little fingers in your eyes. Because they don't want, they, they sense that nobody's in charge of things. Who's, who's looking out for me? Children instinctively want to know that they are being protected and that they are being cared for, provided for in some way. And that's the way God set this up. So Paul talks about this in Galatians. Galatians 3, 23 through 24. Because before, coming of this, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody. He's talking to them about the, the time with Moses. We were held in custody under the law, locked up be, until that faith was to come Man, until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian, like our parent. The law was there to protect us until Christ came that we might be justified in faith. He continues to talk about this when he's talking to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. And Paul is talking to them like a spiritual parent, saying, get your act together. You've had your boundaries. Now it's time for you to grow up and eat some spiritual food and learn to make decisions on your own. But that's something that, is, that you are trained up to do, not something that is done for you forever. Okay, so I see parenting going badly two different ways. People who want to treat their children with rules from zero to 20 the same way, or people who want to treat their children as free agents to do whatever they want from zero to 20. And instead, there's got to be this progression from this rule situation on up. So the next one that I want to bring out, the first, uh, first thing that parenting involves is rules. The second thing is restraint. Restraint. It is one thing to set good boundaries for your, your child. It is another to carefully and consistently call your child back into the safety of those boundaries. 
right? When you have a, a child who, who unwittingly crosses over a boundary, you've said, stay in the fence, don't go over there, don't touch this, whatever, and they go over there and they're just wandering. You pick them up and gently remove. It's called correction. It's and not punishment, correction. You pick them up and you set them where they, where they belong. They need to be there. And then you have the child that you said, don't touch that, and they go that. And then they look at you and go, we're dealing with something else there, another R word, that's rebellion, right? That's another word. That means, uh, I'm not fine. And they're not just testing the limit, folks. They are testing you. They want to know if you have the personal fortitude to stop it. Do you have the personal fortitude to help me save me from myself? Do you have the personal fortitude to make sure that doesn't happen again? This is where the pain comes in. And if you can't handle telling little Johnny and Sally to stop it, then you're never going to have any kind of, of ability to help shape their lives because you're just a, a waving around like a flag in the wind. And what they want is some sort of structure, as some sort of guidance that says, oh, if I consistently touch that, I will consistently be corrected. That's what's going to happen. Whatever your correction methods are, I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to say you have to be consistent in whatever it is that you're doing. When I was first... Um, uh, substitute teaching many, many years ago. My children had all gone to school and I was bored. And so um, I, I was just a homemaker at that point. And uh, so I started subbing in my children's classes. So it would have been like junior high or something. And, and I wanted all of my kids' friends to like me. <laughs> you know, I was trying to be the fun substitute. And, and they were starting to feel their oats, if you know that term. And, um, and finally, the one kid said to me, you know, if you'd send one of us to the office, this would all stop. And I'm like, even the children understand. You know what I'm saying? They're like, please just step up and be a boss. You know, do what needs to be done. There's correction that needs to happen because if you leave that behavior unchecked, if, if children can consistently push the limit and you do not check it, it will be checked somewhere else along the way. I like to tell people, if, if a parent doesn't take charge of what a, children, a child is doing, an educator is going to have to deal with it. Right, they're going to go to school. And when the educator uh, does whatever they can do and they still haven't been able to curb that behavior, then law enforcement is going to have to get involved in that activity. Right? And eventually they're going to get a real time out and it's called jail. Right? Because even society expects that we have boundaries and situations and restraint that is required. And, and what you're really doing is you're going to teach that child self-restraint as opposed to being restrained from the outside. All right? So if you leave this behavior unchecked, it will escalate. And we have an example of that in Scripture. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 3. 1 Samuel 3. I'm going to have to hustle again this morning. Okay, 1 Samuel 3, 11 through 13. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make all the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from the beginning to the end. And I told him I would judge his family forever because of the sin, are you ready, that he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. This is the punishment is coming down on Eli because he failed to restrain them. Now, let me set this up. This is a time period in the Old Testament when the priests were the leaders, okay? There was no king yet uh, in the children of Israel, um, the Hebrew people, whatever, you, whatever rings a bell for you, okay? And Eli is one of the priests at the, at the temple. He ruled for 40 years. Now, here's the situation. 
When the 12 tribes of Israel came out of Egypt and Moses led them out and crossed the Red Sea and all of that, and they went to the Promised Land, when they got to the Promised Land, all of the tribes were given allotments of land. That land was their inheritance. That land was theirs to make homes on, to farm on, to make their living on. The one tribe was not permitted to get any land, and that was the Levites. The Levites weren't given any land because they were the tribe of the priests. And they had to live on the offerings that were brought by the people to the temple. This sets up the whole idea that church workers are paid by the offerings of the people that was set up. And, and to make that perfectly clear, the Levites weren't even permitted to work for a living anywhere else. They didn't have any land to, to work off of. Here's how it would go. There's animal sacrifice system in place. So they would bring their animal sacrifice to the temple and they would cut this slice of meat and they would burn it in the fire, burn the fat off of it, for God, wave it in front of the ark as, a, as a, a part of their ceremony for God. Then they would boil the meat in a vat. Okay, the leftover meat was the portion for the priest, and they would stick a fork in there, and whatever came out, that's what the, the priest could eat. That's fabulous if you like boiled meat. Is that how you fix your roast? Is that how you fix your ribeye? Probably not, right? So the, the priests are getting tired of this. And so instead, these boys are foodies and they want a ribeye. So they began to change the system. When people bring, brought their uh, offerings in, they said, we are not accepting that unless you give us that cut of meat right there. We want the one with the fat on it because we're going to fix it the way we like it because we're pretty good cooks around here. And that's what they began to do. And they shared that with their father. And so they were corrupting the sacrificial system in the way that they were doing things. Not to mention the fact they were sleeping with women at the temple. They were not good guys all the way around, okay? But here's the bottom line. Eli knew about it. He was told about it. He confronted them, but he confronted them in this sort of way as, well, the people are saying you're doing bad stuff. So why don't you quit doing bad stuff? At the same time that he was partaking in the meat that they were cooking and making, okay? So that's part of the problem, all right? And so here's how we know that. A prophet comes and warns him, 1 Samuel 2. <clears throat> now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestor's family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestor's family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed you in my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourself on the choicest parts of every offering made by my people Israel? So clearly, that's what Eli had been doing, and he will end up being punished for that because he failed to restrain them and he partook in their sin. Why don't we do the work of restraint with our children? I think there's at least three reasons. Number one, it's hard work. It's hard work to make somebody stop doing something that they shouldn't be doing. You know how many times when my children were small that I pretended I didn't see them misbehaving? Because if they saw me see them misbehaving, then I had to get up and do something about it. And I didn't feel like getting up and doing it. So I was like, I don't see it. But no, because you have to engage. You have to step up and take care of business. You have to show up for your children and, and be there. And it's hard work. And some of us are just lazy. And we don't want to do that. I felt that, at least when I was raising children. It's a struggle. You have to care. You have to be consistent. Number two, it makes children sad. We don't restrain our kids because you can't handle their pain. 
little Johnny screams too loud and it makes me uncomfortable and he doesn't like me and I don't want to do it. You know what? You're going to have to get a handle on this is where your ability to process through pain or whether you just, you know, medicate it in some way or, or distract from it so that you don't have to deal with it. That's your issue. You're going to have to be willing to make that child unhappy long enough to get the, what you need for them, what is better for them. And thirdly, we're benefiting from their behavior. The reason we don't restrain our kids is we are sometimes subconsciously benefiting from what they're doing. And we don't even think about it. Okay? So one of the things that came to mind as I was thinking, well, let's, let's just do this. Eli, by the way, was a large man. Here's one more example that we know he was benefiting from this. In 1 Samuel 4.18 it says, it talks about how, how Eli died. Um, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. Very few scriptures that talk about people's weight. This one does. And I think it's directly connected to the fact that he had been partaking in the food sacrifices that he wasn't supposed to have. I think he enjoyed food. I think he enjoyed a good steak. Whatever the case was, he was partaking in that stuff and it was a problem. So first of all, you cannot care more about public opinion than we care about our children's spiritual well-being. And we have to be honest about how we are personally benefiting from our children's activity. Now, these things aren't sin, but think about it. We sign our kids up for everything. We sign our kids up for everything. If you've got a child with a great athletic ability, and particularly if it's maybe even a little better than you were at their age, you're really tempted to sign them up and to just kind of vicariously live through their excellence and what they're enjoying in their process. If your kid has musical ability, you might sign them up for all of that and you're kind of enjoying the benefit of their successes and kind of living in the, in the shadow of that pride and what that means. And, and ladies, hear me and you can, you can email me later, but I think that women, as we get older and we feel that our beauty is fading and we see our daughters and they're exhibiting the beauty that we once had and it's a temptation to parade those little girls through and watch them gain the attention that we remember and we're vicariously living through that and it's going to haunt us. It's going to haunt us. That is not the way to raise our children if the personal benefit that we're getting from it is driving what we're doing. God reminds Eli, he is the parent. Step up and restrain his child's youthful and willful behavior. Now, these guys were grown adults, and I think uh, the, the difference here is they were on staff for him. He had a reason and a, and a responsibility to set those boys down. Even if he couldn't control them anymore, he had a responsibility to do that. Because I think the third thing that I want to say, first of all, you have to have rules. Second of all, restraint. The third thing is release. You've got to be willing to let these children go. Okay? And we know this from the very beginning. In Genesis, God says a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. Separation from parents has been the plan from the very beginning. And we have to be willing to let our children go. And that means you have to prepare them for it. You have to prepare them for it. I love the fact that this is exactly what Jesus does with his disciples. He prepares them to go out. And here's where we see it in Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two, ahead, two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he said, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. And the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. You know what? 
He let his disciples go out. He said, fly, little birdies, fly. And he gave them opportunity to mess up. He gave them opportunity to fail and gave them the opportunity to come back. And some of them came back and said, yay, it's working really well. And some of them were like, this demon won't leave. I don't know what his problem is. And they're like, we didn't do very good on that one. And it, he helps them with that. He doesn't chastise them and he doesn't go, wow, I was a bad parent. You really weren't ready. He doesn't do that either. He continues to work with them and to train them to leave his, um, his care because he knows separation is coming. So here's how we have to release our children. Prepare them for launch. There's a reason their college ministry is called launch. Prepare them for that. Train them up. Give them everything you've got to give them. And then when they begin to sense that separation coming, the whole chapter of John 14 is the disciples going, don't leave us, Jesus, don't leave us. And he's like, he comforts them. So we have to prepare our children. We have to comfort them for that time of separation, right? You have to warn them about what's ahead. Then he spends another chapter going, this is what you're gonna run into out there, be ready. This is the stuff that's coming and finally you encourage them as they leave. You can do it, you can do it. Go fly, you're gonna be fine. One final note, I love that he sends them out two by two. You don't usually send your children out two by two. I get to, I had twins, but mostly you don't get to do that. But I do think there's a point here to be made that you teach your children the importance of community. You teach your children, they don't do this alone. You teach your children, you go to another city to take a job, you find a church, you find people, you get involved, you don't do things alone. You are not good alone, nobody is. Make sure that you have community where you go, all right? And then this is my favorite part, when, Jesus, when the disciples come back, Jesus is honest with them about their performance. He doesn't take the blame for what they do wrong. He, do, he takes their failures in stride because the last thing I wanna tell you is raising children involves restoration. You have to restore them. This is the prodigal son, right? You've got, a, you've got a kid who just like says no to Jesus and they take off. They're like, I'm not interested. I'm out of here, I'm taking all the money and I'm going. This is what the parent does not do. The parent does not chase them. The parent did not email 15 places to find out where he'd blown his money. The parent did not text him to death. In the prodigal son story in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 15, what he does is he sits on the porch and he watches and he waits for that child to return. He waits for that child to come to his senses. And when that child comes back, he doesn't berate him for everything that he did. He doesn't enable him. He doesn't help him in his poor choices, right? But he brings him in. And so restoration does not involve enabling. It involves forgiveness. When you come back, I'm not writing off everything that you've done, but I am here to tell you there is a second chance. There is another chance for you, and you have another chance with me. Come back and let me help you get on your feet again because there is restoration. That is the picture of a loving father. That is what the father has for us. That's what he has for his children. God is not a doormat. He is not an ATM. He is a loving father who is ready to say, come on back. Are you finally ready to say yes to me? You know, this, this whole message took a whole different turn last service than it did here too, than where I was planning to go. But I just sense that I want you to have the opportunity this morning to say yes to Jesus. And your yes is only as powerful as your right to say, I'm not interested. Or I don't know, not yet. Hang out all day long. You get to decide when you say yes. It's the best yes you'll ever make.
the best yes you will ever make. We're getting ready to go into a closing song. If you're new here, this is how we do things. These people are not just random folks. This is our prayer team. And they've been planning and praying about this. And they will be standing up here. And we're going to sing one more song as you all come to your feet. And as this is going on, during this last song, any of you who would like to come forward for prayer, you can come and they're not going to ask you any, you know, hard questions. You share whatever you would like with them and they will pray with you. If there is somebody in this room who is ready to say yes to Jesus, this is your day. This is your day. Maybe you've been saying maybe to Jesus too long. Maybe that's why you're in the room. You're saying maybe. I don't know, maybe. And you know this is your morning and it's time to surrender everything fully to him and to come back and that you're ready to leave whatever it is that has been troubling you and has been a weight on you. If that's you, come forward. Let somebody pray for you. Maybe there are some of you who have just really been feeling this parenting thing kind of hard and you're still, you realize you're taking too much blame for the choices your kids have made and you just need to leave that somewhere. You need to drop it this morning. You come up here and drop it. These people aren't going to give you parenting advice. They're going to pray for you. Maybe you know there's something else in your life that it's time to clean it up and to let it go and you just need to be restored in some way. We want to pray over that for you. So let's go into this last song. Come up at any time.